Hey friends, I'm glad you're here. I just wanted to let you know about a new program that we just opened up this week. It's called The Flock by The Schoolhouse Life. And it is a intensive homesteading self-sufficiency program where we guide you through the steps you need to take to get your life to a self-sufficient stage, whether that's homeschooling, homesteading, entrepreneurship, natural medicine. We will help you figure out the plan for your life and in a three-month program, create a roadmap to that and practical applications. So by the end of the three months, you have some abundance flowing in those areas and you know where you're headed for the rest of the year. If that's something that you're interested in, I would love for you to check out the schoolhouselife.com backslash the academy. And that's the schoolhouselife.com backslash the academy. That's got all the details for you on it. And uh, super excited to offer it and enjoy this podcast episode. My favorite part of permaculture was the stacking functions. Yeah. And that just really hit home to me. So I wanted to, I noticed that I had some, some design components where I just had so many functions that were stacked within that component that it felt like the component kind of took on a life of its own. So I kind of played around with that a little bit and I felt like the number seven was this magical number. And I felt like, you know, if you, if you could have seven functions in a component, then it became bio-integrated. So okay. ever since then, I've had to, you know, create all these components in my design um, that had as many functions as possible. We try to do with permaculture, but every now and then I hit that sweet spot and I, I've got a component that has seven functions in it and it, and it just kind of comes to life. Welcome to the Schoolhouse Life Podcast, where we believe that life is a schoolhouse. Totally. We're super dorks with a passion for sharing our love of homeschooling, homesteading, natural health care, plant medicines, natural childbirth, healthy eating, meditation, creative endeavors, overall self-sufficiency for the whole family. Oh, and don't forget self-development and spirituality. Oh, of course. Key players. We hope you'll be inspired to do things you haven't, try things that could make your life better, and mostly we want to encourage you to never stop learning and let your life be a schoolhouse too. All right, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we have a uh, great guy. His name is Sean Yardinchek. Forgive me, Sean, if I said that incorrectly. But he's going to be talking to us about permaculture, farming in general, and then his book, Bio-Integrated Farm, which just has some really cool ideas behind it. So I uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. And as always, you know, leave comments, questions in the uh, comments, and we'll uh, make sure to answer those too. So, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah. Excited. So, I guess, like, let's just start at the beginning. Can you kind of give us, like, a history of where you started from and, you know, what got you to where you are now? Yeah, I was actually going to dental track and as an undergrad and ended up becoming interested in plants and quickly, you know, fell in love with that field. So, switched tracks. That's, a big, that's a big shift. It <laughs> <laughs> was a shift, but, you know, I really liked being outside and, yeah, I was a dental assistant for a while, and I just remember looking out the window, being like, oh, "I really don't want to be in here." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, switched tracks and ended up uh, starting a farm in Santa Cruz. Also did landscaping and irrigation contracting on the side to make ends meet, and then ended up moving back to the East Coast after being um, out there working on that farm for seven years. Did extension work for about four years on the East Coast and then started managing the farm, the organic farm at Clemson University. Did that for six years and then um, I've been managing Wild Hope Farm in Chester, South Carolina now for three and a half years. Wow. We're a diversified vegetable farm. We um, 
our main markets are CSA program. We have 355 members. That's a big um, CSA. Big CSA. We have 12 and a half acres in production and we also serve a farmer's market and then also do wholesale Do about an acre and a half or so of wholesale. Wow. Uh, and then have a flock of, Last time I checked, it was two around 250 hand laying hens. Okay. We, uh, wow. Rotate on pasture. Okay. So with your CSA, do you do meat also, or is it just vegetable based? Just vegetables, and then we have the egg add on. Okay. Awesome. So I know. Um, are you implementing kind of your? Maybe we should back up and define what bio integration is, because that's. That's what your book is about. Some people know a lot about farming that are listening. Some people, this is kind of a brand new idea. So let's let's help out the new people and kind of <laughs> explain that a little bit. Yeah, it was, the concept was I was trying to, you know, my favorite part of permaculture was the stacking functions. Yeah. And that just really hit home to me. So I wanted to, I noticed that I had some, some design components where I just had so many functions that were stacked within that component that it felt like the component kind of took on a life of its own. So I kind of played around with that a little bit and I felt like the number seven was this magical number. And I felt like, you know, if you, if you could have seven functions and a component, then it became bio-integrated. So okay. ever since then, I've had to, you know, create all these components in my design that had as many functions as possible. We try to do with permaculture, but every now and then I hit that sweet spot and I, I've got a component that has seven functions in it and it, and it just kind of comes to life. Yeah. So, so okay. Yeah. You got to give us then give us like your number one, let me frame this. I'm going to make it harder on you. So a small scale homesteader, you know, like, like we kind of talked about 20 acres or less. What's like one, one of those that they could do like a seven, a seven stacker. My favorite one that I think every Every kind of homestead could use is a is a water garden and to stack more functions into it you know I use harvest water off of a roof to fill the water garden and then place the water garden at the sweet spot on the south side of your house and I have a formula in my book that shows you exactly how far away it's supposed to be from the house and that's dependent upon your latitude as well as like your window height and a bunch of factors Awesome. Okay. You, yeah. If you put it on the south side, then you get this reflected light that comes off of it just in the winter time, just in the cold time of year, reflects off of there, gives you all this awesome light. But then you can grow all this food in the water garden too, and you know, use it as a rotation for chickens and just becomes this amazing little gathering spot for, for life and solar energy. Yeah. I've noticed we have, we actually have a small scale setup of that. And I actually put in like a little fake creek that I just pump the water so it comes up and down. But since we've done all that, like the amount of animals that come to that area is just insane. I mean, you know, during the summer, we'll sit out there and just birds and frogs and everything. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty cool one. So when we're talking stack for people that don't know, the functions are like, if we're going to break down that one, that's like water storage, right? Is mm -hmm. one. What else? Reflecting sunlight. Yeah. Food, I guess. Food would be another one. Let me open up the book and see all the functions that I <laughs> Well, an animal habitat would be another. Um, yeah, yeah. Frog and toad habitat. I grow grow uh, minnows in them as well as tadpoles, and you can feed okay. those chickens. Yeah. To grow protein for your chickens. You know, oh, you crazy. Like, so minnows for your chickens in there? Yeah, yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah, I've done several different, you know, you can grow mosquito fish, which 
just thrive yeah. system like that. And uh, tadpoles really flourish in there too. If you don't have, if you have minnows in there, they tend to feed on the, the frog and toad eggs. You won't have as many tadpoles. Okay. If you keep minnows out of there, you know, that you get more frog and frogs and tadpoles. Yeah, man, that's a really cool idea. Okay. So on the farm that you're working at now, like what are a couple of things that you're working towards as far as like stacking features like that? Do you have any like new projects that you, you've got going? I was just thinking about this a couple days ago. We do have a cool system that we built. It's basically, I think it's bio-integrated. I'm not sure I need to count the functions on it. It's basically a greenhouse bench and the bench is made out of 55 gallon drums, just plastic drums that were in the greenhouse as thermal mass. So they, they heat up during the daytime and then re-radiate that heat at night. We tied them in with the compost heat extraction system that we have. So we have, we compost a massive amount of waste every year and we have a concrete slab. We have several different types of heating systems that we capture the heat from, but this one's a little more expensive. The simplest one is we just have a wall of barrels on the side of our greenhouse. And then the compost pile is packed up against that and it transfers the heat directly through the barrels and into the greenhouse. Oh, wow. So the compost is on the outside and the barrels are on the inside? No, the barrels are on the outside too. Um, Because I like to keep a, a sheet of plastic in there to prevent any compost gases from getting into the greenhouse. Yeah, okay. So the barrels are on the outside, but they're touching the plastic is key. Okay. To transfer the heat through. That's the cheap way to do it. But we have another system where, you know, the compost is on top of a concrete slab. There's pipes inside the slab, and then that's connected to a closed loop recirculation system. Oh, wow. So we can run water through that. It heats the water up inside the pipes. And then we transfer the heat into the barrels through just a barrel heat exchanger. So we've got pipes that run about 50 feet of pipes inside each barrel. And then uh, the compost heat, you know, heats those barrels up and then that gets transferred into the greenhouse. Wow. So the barrels are also capturing solar energy. They're capturing compost heat. And they're also acting as bench for the greenhouse. Yeah. And um, we're going to build out a system this year so we can capture heat from those barrels and then try to use it as a bottom heating system for our benches as well. Oh, wow. To get yeah. a in the soil so that's getting pretty far up there next to the seven mark also yeah 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 it's getting close i'm not sure if it's quite there yet yeah but unless you factor in you know all the compost that you can all the uses for the compost you know the heat and then the also the nutrients that's probably getting closer yeah okay so a little bit tougher question this is something we've been kind of asking other people is where do you see the future of agriculture going you know like this past summer we saw kind of a lot of the food system breaking down you know we weren't able to get supplies of produce and meat you know restaurant even all the way down to restaurants were shutting down because they couldn't get food or they had too much food on but where do you see kind of agriculture going or fitting in with that in Maybe that maybe another part of that is where do you think it should go? You know, however you want to answer that. Yeah, I mean, on a, I, I see a lot of cool things happening on a small scale with all these little micro farms that are popping up, and people are making a living on on small acreage using the silage tarps and the occultation techniques. Um, I think the occultation has just recently blossomed, and it's allowed all. You gotta all define. Farms. You gotta define that one for us. Yeah, occultation. So it's where you basically use a light blocking tarp. So instead of having all this, you know, machinery that you would normally need for a farm, all this tillage and all the time that it takes to do the tillage, you know, you can basically get away without having a tiller by just having a a light blocking silage tarp that blocks the light. So just kind of opened up a whole new realm for these small farms and, and reduced the, 
you know, amount of money that it costs to like invest to get those farms started. Yeah. So I see that as, as being part of the future, you know, a lot of smaller farms that aren't using as much equipment and then using that occultation technique to get, you know, to do what they need instead of the tillage. Yeah. Uh, on a larger scale, you know, we, we've experimented with some occultation, but, uh, and I tried to bring that into a larger scale farm last year and we're doing, you know, we have about a half acre under tarp right now. Wow. Which is a lot for like a small farm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's just so, you know, and, and I think it, it, I was using it to protect us against early, you know, the field being too wet early in the spring. Gotcha. Because you can't get out there in a tr- with the tractor. And we had that issue last year, which has never dried out. Yeah. If it does dry out, like this year it did dry out. So we were able to get the tractor in there. But in the areas that we had tarped, I can't get the tractor into those areas because the tarp was holding in the moisture. Oh no, <laughs> like the reverse. Yeah. <laughs> reversed it. So yeah. it's great if it's too wet because you can get a, get out there and do everything by hand if you need to. But if it does dry out, you know, and the amount of time it takes to move the tarps. Um, oh yeah. Those tarps you know, are heavy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're, they're heavy. It takes a lot of time and managing them is a lot more work than, you know, using a big tractor. I can prep you know, a massive amount of space, 10 times the area in the same amount of time it takes yeah. to move those tarps. So on a larger scale, doesn't I'm realizing it doesn't make as much sense, but it's still, you know, a tool in the basket. But on the larger scale, I think, you know, doing we are doing no-till techniques with um, the roller crimper. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where we grow the mulch in place and then use that roller crimper to, to kill the mulch and leave it a, a, or kill the cover crop, grow the cover crop, and then use the roller crimper to kill it and then leave that mulch in place. So that has been really helpful on a larger scale. And we've developed a bunch of techniques that allow you to do, you know, more of that with more of your crops. Yeah, I love that idea. So are you planning right into that after you crimp it and kill it? or? or yeah, so we crimp it, kill it, and then, you know, it gives you about six weeks of weed control. And then if we need, need more weed control than that, we'll add leaves or wood chips to it. Okay. And then that way we can get six months or more weed control out of it. Wow. That's really and then we started doing some double no-till and triple no-till techniques. So like for the longer season weed control, we'll do eggplants and peppers and we developed a new technique. So instead of when those are finished, they're still perfectly weed free because we added the, the leaves of the wood chips to the roller crimped mulch. Oh, wow. And then we'll just mow those down and then put garlic in. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. And then just add another light layer of mulch to the top of that. And then you get so weed suppression all through the garlic's uh, growth cycle. So it reduces the amount of mulch you need for the garlic by about 75%. Wow. Yeah. And then you don't have to do any tillage to plant the garlic either. You're just basically reusing that same like, bed. Yeah. yeah. And then last year we ended up, you know, pulling the garlic out. It was still pretty weed free. So then we plopped in watermelons. Yeah. Awesome. And boom, triple no-till. So eventually the the perennial weeds will start moving back in and you've got to do a tillage operation or a tarping operation to get rid of those. Yeah. That's a really cool. Yeah. I always preach the, you know, like I was telling you, we're kind of more small scale. So I always preach the tarp versus tilling. We were just talking about that last night on a webinar, but yeah, I think there's, there's huge potential in that. And I mean, even the growing the cover crop and crimping that, have you seen that on a small scale or is that just kind of generally like you have to have a tractor for that? No, you can't. I first started on just a little quarter acre plot and I had a um, roller crimper that attached to the front of my uh, walk behind tractor at a Grillo. Okay. Yeah. And attached to that and you put dumbbell weights on it to weight it up, Um, but that worked great. And then, uh, you can even do it on a smaller scale with just like, I haven't tried it, but I've seen people do it. They'll take a two by four 
and bolt a piece of angle iron to it and then tie a rope to that. And then you just step every eight inches oh, yeah. with that and that will crimp it and keep it down. Okay. So it is possible. And even, you know, with the tarping, you can combine the two. You could, instead of crimping it, you could just, you know, roll it down with a sod roller or something like that. And then to lay it down and then put tarp over it and the tarp will prevent it from popping back up. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about your book. Let us like, what's the general idea behind that? I know we talked about biointegration a little bit, but I feel like the book seems like it really applies to homesteading also. Am I right? Yeah. So yeah, I tried to make it as widely applicable as possible. So I have some farm stuff in there, larger scale stuff, but then a lot of home scale stuff because it's so fun. I think doing, you know, working on a home homestead size scale because you can, I don't know, there's just so much more functions you can stack. It always seems like there's another way to get more yield out of the space. And yeah. you can really kind of only do that when you're working on a small scale. A lot of times on a, lar- on a larger scale, you're just trying to mechanize things and, right. uh, yeah. and make things as efficient as possible, but not really maximizing productivity on a small area. So yeah, it has a lot of just, you know, unusual, cool things I tried and experimented with that was fun. Like harvesting, trying to harvest rainwater off your roof and then use that, harvesting it with gravity through what, what's called a wet rainwater harvesting system and storing it high enough with gravity to then also use gravity to get it into your toilets and then flush your toilets. Well, that's uh, pretty awesome. That was a fun, fun experiment. So toilet flushing via gravity and roof runoff. Yeah. It's always blown my mind that you can move water, basically, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but you can move water anywhere that's just lower than your roof, like your gutter, basically, right? I mean, like, yeah. so you can kind of go uphill depending on where you are and then use that to come back down, basically, right? Exactly, yeah. It freaked me out the first time I did it. My friend told me about it because I was going to build this, like, aqueduct system to get it to where I wanted. And he's like, no, do this wet system and, and you can get it up there. You do have to crunch the numbers and because there is friction that happens as the water moves through the pipe. So the amount of friction is going to determine how much lower it has to be from your gutters. Gotcha. But it was kind of surprisingly, you know, as long as you have a big enough pipe, like I used a four inch pipe, I was able to move it several hundred feet and it was only, you know, a few feet below the gutters on my roof. Wow. It was several hundred feet uphill, but it was still lower than the roof. So I was able to get it up there. Yeah, that is so crazy. I love that kind of stuff. Well, I really appreciate your time. The one question that we ask everybody at the end is, what do you personally do to stay healthy? I like to rock climb as much as I can. So get out and it's good for the mental health, but also for the physical health. Yeah. Do you have many uh, mountains in Chester? No, I go to the gym, which is in Charlotte. I go once a week. I try to go once a week. So there's a gym there, which is the same distance away as Crowder's Mountain. Oh, yeah. Which is about, yeah, so 45, 50 minutes away, we can go to a mountain, and it's a beautiful hike and lots of rocks. Yeah. I grew up in Charlotte, so we used to go, that was our mountain, was Crowder's Mountain. Some uh, weird yeah, mountain just yeah. south in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate your time. I hope everybody got some good ideas out of this. I think there's a lot to learn, and definitely everybody check out Sean's book. There's way more in there that you can learn also. But, yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.